So those verses that were just read, you'll find those on the YouVersion Bible app in our notes for this morning. If you uh, haven't opened that yet, you have time, or uh, you haven't downloaded that the YouVersion Bible app, I hope that you will do that. But they are part of a story that I'm going to guess quite a few of us recognize, the story of Job. And uh, it was interesting to us who had gathered earlier this morning that on a morning when we're going to talk about Job, we lost all of our electricity in this part of Miamisburg. And we're sent scrambling. And then we talked about how not that anything that we have faced this morning is anything in comparison to what Job has faced, but we're going to talk about that. He lived 4,500 years ago. Uh, The book of Job was probably the first book that was written uh, for the Bible. He predated Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, you may be wondering, that's really, you know, great information, but why are you telling us that? I want to make sure that you get that the first divinely inspired written book deals with our age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, uh, Some things just never seem to change. There comes a time in every life, just like in Job's life, when you still wonder the same thing. It's as if, it's as if all hell breaks loose. And it's sudden, and it's unexpected. One day life is calm, and your job is predictable, and the kids are all behaving, and your health is good. And then out of the blue, like a violent, angry thunderstorm, tragedy strikes. And your teenager is hit by a drunk driver and dies instantly. Or Friday comes, and you receive a termination notice. Or your doctor sits on the edge of your hospital bed, and she tells you, that the reports are not good, or your husband is suddenly tired of being married and leaves you for someone that he met on Facebook. Listen, tragedy happens to all of us. None of us are exempt from tragedy. One level or another of tragedy strikes every life. And then the doubts begin, and the questions begin to come. Why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this? God, don't you love me? God, what is wrong with me? And I want to warn you as we walk into this series, and it's only going to be three weeks, so today and then the next couple of weeks, but there are going to be lessons over these next three weeks you are not going to want to hear. Uh, We will likely read verses that are going to raise more questions than they provide answers. And there'll be some painful memories that quite likely will come rising to the surface as we look at Job's story. But it's my hope that God will speak through uh, what happened with Job and what God had to say about it that will encourage you and equip you for the very difficult times that are going to come in your life. So listen, if this is your first time here, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. Thank you for being here in the room. Thank you for joining us online. As we begin this look, I'm going to share four truths with you uh, that even when life is hard, it's a reminder that God is good. So we know life is hard, but God is good. And here's the first one. Bad things happen to good people. We know that. It's in the very first uh, verse that we find this out. In the land of, of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. Verse 3 tells us that he was the greatest man among all of the Israelites. All the people, not the Israelites, there weren't Israelites yet. yet. All the people of the east. And in verse 8, we find out that he's the kind of man that even God brags about. Look at what God says. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Which, by the way, when God says that about you, that's a pretty impressive endorsement. But not only was he a man of great character, as we just heard, he was a man of, of vast wealth. 
If you looked out his window, you would see the oxen were out plowing the field, preparing the soil for the next crop. And it's, it's a sunny afternoon and soft clouds are floating uh, through the sky. And underneath, the sheep are grazing in the field and donkeys are feeding nearby and the camels are being loaded for the next journey on the long cavern trail. All the field, all the field hands are out in the field handling, handling the animals that they all know by name. And if you look down the road just a little bit over at the oldest son's house, just a couple miles down the, the road, the brothers and sisters are having a blast telling family stories. They're laughing over the, some of the funny things that have happened in the family. And if you listen closely at Job's door, you will hear a dad praying for his children by name, one by one. And if those first five verses of the book of Job was all we had to go on, there isn't one of us who wouldn't have wanted to trade places with him. But suddenly there's this loud banging at the door of the big house. And once he opens the door, his life is never going to be the same. Listen, it's the phone ringing at midnight for us. It's that after dark, late night, knock at the door. And the messenger bursts in without being invited. He's winded. He's sobbing. And with his uncontrollable passion, he blurts out, the oxen, the oxen, our oxen were plowing. The donkeys were feeding right beside them. And those people from Shabia, they they attacked us. We've talked about the possibility of them coming, and they came. They did it. They assaulted us, Master, and they took all the animals, all the animals, and they cut all of the servants to ribbons. I'm the only one that escaped. And while he's still speaking, another messenger plunges into the scene, and without hesitation, he screamed. There was this, it was a bolt of lightning. Uh, Fire from heaven came down, and instantly it consumed all of the sheep and all of the field hands who take care of the sheep. I was the only one who was able to get away. And then another pushes him aside, and he grabs Job by the sleeve, and he says, Master, you won't believe it, but three raids of the Chaldeans hit at the same time in that area where you are planning, preparing the camels for the trip, and they've taken all the camels away. And before all of the other servants were murdered, I managed to escape. I alone am left. And I wonder if Job, under the weight of that, doesn't step unsteadily just to grab hold of something to hold on to and thinks to himself, at least I still have my family. Interrupting that thought, another workman plunges in and fighting back tears, he says, Master Job, your sons and daughters, they're all gone. This fierce tornado was coming across it swept through the wilderness. It threw carts and animals into the air. And, and it kept coming with this deafening roar. And it came, it came right over the house of your eldest son. And the place just imploded. And all of your sons and daughters were inside. And we might expect something like this to happen to a guy like Vladimir Putin for what he's done to the people of Ukraine. But not to someone like Job. Not to someone who's blameless and upright, who fears God and shuns evil. Eugene Peterson said this. It's in the notes. I want to make sure you can take it home. It's not the suffering that troubles us. It's the undeserved suffering. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess that almost all of us growing up have had the experience of disobeying our parents and getting punished for it. And when that discipline is connected with something that we've done wrong, I mean, there seems to be, you know, a justice to it. We do something wrong and we get punished. But what surprises us is that as we get older, we come to see 
there's no real correlation between the amount of wrong that we commit and the amount of pain that we experience. An even larger surprise comes to us as we get older that sometimes it's quite the opposite. We do the right thing, and we get knocked down. We're doing the best that we're, that we're capable of, and just as we're reaching out to receive our reward, we're blindsided as it's taken away. Look at what Peter wrote. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised by troubles that you face. Philip Yancey would write, the cross demolished for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. And in case you missed it, because... It's easy to miss. It runs counter to everything that we think ought to be. Not only was Job's suffering not a result of his being so bad, it's actually a result of him being so good. In the storm, it may be true to say that the tallest tree in the forest is most likely to be the one that draws the lightning. As a matter of fact, it's God's children do suffer. Tragedy is a required course. It's not a chosen elective for any of us. And I know this is hard to hear, and so I don't say it loudly. But bad things happen to people. Bad things happen to the Son of God. We should not be surprised when all of his children face bad things, which brings us to another hard life lesson. I think it's a hard lesson. No suffering comes without God's permission. You know, one of the fascinating and disturbing parts of this story of Job is where all of this pain and heartache comes from. Verse 6 tells us that one day Satan reports to God... So keep in mind that Satan may have a certain level of influence in the world, but there's only one who is in charge. God is still in charge. The devil has to report to the king of the universe. And as we've seen, God's bragging on Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Basically, Satan challenged God to a bet. And what's really strange is God takes him up on it. Satan believed that he could destroy Job and discredit God in the process. And when it didn't work with the initial attacks against his possessions and against his children, a second challenge is thrown down in chapter 2. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And Satan says, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your own hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And in verse 6, God says, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. I like the way Don Baker said it. Uh, he said, the stakes were high that were laid on heaven's table as God put his money on Job. Now, I don't, I don't know if you're so familiar with this story of Job that verses like that just kind of go in one ear and out the other, or if you're so new to this that those verses sound scandalous to even think about. But the fact is they're unsettling no matter how you look at it. Rather than preventing Satan from having his way, rather than saying, hey, back off, which is what we would expect God to say, God instead set some fairly general ground rules, and then he turned Satan loose. God didn't specifically cause Job's suffering, but it is fair to say that he allowed it. And it's not the only time in Scripture that we see this happening. After Jesus was arrested, but before he was crucified, he appears before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? 
don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. God allowed his own son to suffer. And just before Jesus was arrested, he was talking to Peter and let him know that later that night his courage would leave him and he would deny knowing Jesus. Look at what he said to Peter. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I don't know if you've picked up on that verse before when you're reading through the Gospels. Simon, Satan has asked. Listen, I don't believe that God causes all suffering. As a matter of fact, and this is in the notes because I think it's important for us to keep this in mind. But sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because others sin against us. And sometimes we suffer because of Adam and Eve's sin. We just live in a fallen world where germs and disease and accidents and death have their way sometimes. God is not the cause of all suffering, but he does allow it. Nothing happens to you or me without God's permission. I don't know if that's comforting to you or not. It does seem to offer some measure of protection that God has to say okay before it can happen. But when you read through this book of Job, it makes it fairly clear that God does at times allow some pretty horrific things. And I just want to remind you, I told you earlier, I'm going to tell you again. If you are looking for easy explanations to painful questions, this is not going to be where you get them. Yet maybe it will help to understand why God allows suffering. So in the notes, I put this. I live on mission. And by the way, when we talk about that, we're talking about living out our faith. We live out our faith when I allow the trials of life to help me mature. And we're not going to deal a whole lot with that this morning. We'll cover that over the next couple of weeks. But it might be fair to say that most of what we know about the, the book of Job, for most of us, happens in these first two chapters. But there's 38 more that are going to follow, 40 chapters more that will follow. Things did get better. Job was a good man before he suffered. He's a great man after he, he suffers. The truth is that pain makes us stronger. I found a great book years ago by Philip Gully. Uh, it's called French Por- Front Porch Tales. It's just a bunch of stories, but he tells about a neighbor he had growing up whose name was Dr. Gibbs. He said when Dr. Gibbs wasn't saving lives, he was planting trees. He owned 10 acres, and his goal was to turn that 10 acres into a forest, but he had this, these interesting ideas about horticulture. And so this is what he wrote about Dr. Gibbs. He says, Dr. Gibbs never watered his new trees. One day I asked him why. He said that watering plants spoiled them. And that if you water them, each successive generation will grow weaker and weaker. So you have to make things rough for them and weed out the weenie trees early on. He'd plant an oak, and instead of watering it every morning, he'd beat it with a rolled-up newspaper. And I asked him why he did that. He said, I'm trying to get this tree's attention. Dr. Gibbs went on to glory a couple years after I left home. And every now and then, I walk by his house, and I look at those trees. Some of them he planted. I helped him plant 25 years ago. They are granite strong now, big and robust. They are trees that wake up in the morning, beat their chests, and drink their coffee black. He said, funny thing about those trees of Dr. Gibbs, adversity and deprivation seem to have benefited them in a way that comfort and ease never could. Someone said, God is more concerned with our character than our comfort, which, by the way, is not very comforting. Ken Geyer said it this way, pain is the chisel that crafts our character. 
That is a hard lesson to accept, but it's true. There is an old slogan. See, if you know it, no pain, no gain. That was written on the wall in the weight room of the high school I went to. All the other guys went in there to lift weights. I went in to read signs. Uh, <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? No pain, no gain. Trials enable us to grow. Pain makes us stronger. Last month, remember, we were walking through James, and we talked about how this can become an Achilles heel for us. James 1 reminds us, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what did he just say? How do we become a mature and complete, not lacking anything? We face trials of many kinds. God feels our pain. He doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't delight in it. He doesn't inflict it senselessly. He hurts when we hurt, but he allows pain in our lives so that we can become stronger. Paul would write this, I want to know Christ just to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So it's important for us to know And it's also important to know this. I live on mission when I allow pain to bring me to God. You know, following the news of his financial ruin and his children's death, Josh just shared verse 20 with us. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. Let me read that part again. He fell to the ground in worship. It said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Listen, can I just say, he wasn't nonchalant about this loss. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. All signs of intense grief, uh, over, overwhelming grief. However, he fell before the Lord in worship because there was nowhere else to go. He falls before God because even on the worst day of his life, where else would he turn? When I do funerals, I will quite often share Psalm 34, verse 18, which says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. If you're old enough, you've heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed from the neck down during a diving accident when she was 17 years old. And she would say, Suffering causes us to lean hard on God when otherwise we would not. That's why God permits things that he hates. He despises divorce. He hates cancer. He hates diabetes and multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injuries. However, he allows those things in order to accomplish in us what he treasures far more. And so let me tell you what she said one more time. Suffering causes us to lean on God when otherwise we would not. Because even when life is hard, God is good. And Job learned that faith means holding on when we don't understand it. It means worshiping when we don't feel like it. And it means trusting that although things are painful right now in our life, there is still a God in heaven who one day will make everything right. It's why 
we come to a moment where we remember that the best thing that happened for us cost God the life of his son. Your best moment came at God's greatest loss. And so that's also why when we come to a time of communion, we remember our commitment that we made to him through our baptism. You know, I want to share this, that this past Monday, Jeremy came over and was baptized by his wife as he made his commitment to Jesus. So check this out. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. I love you. Uh-huh. Jesus loves you even more than me and them. Right. And I'm so grateful you're my husband. <laughs> so repeat after me. Okay. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. The living or the Son of the Living God. The Son of the Living God. And I accept Him as my Lord and Savior. And I accept Him as my Lord and Savior. Jeremy Seals, because of your confession and your desire to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. FYI, not everyone gets a kiss after being baptized. I want to be real clear about that. And we have a couple of young ladies who are going to be coming over the next couple of weeks who are going to make that same commitment to Jesus through their baptism. And I just want to say, if you've not done that yet, and that's something you've been thinking about, and you want, we would love to help you. I'll be right up front afterwards. We can talk about that, what that means, how to make that happen. But when we come to this time, the reason we talk about that is we take these emblems that remind us of Jesus' blood and body that were given for us. And part of what we're saying, I need to make sure you catch this. Part of what we say as we talk about this is when life is hard, we take this to remind us that when life is hard, I still trust you. I may not like it. I may not understand it. I may be mad or sad. or. <laughs> but I will trust you. I will trust you. Because you have loved me so much at a cost that I could never bear to pay for anyone else. But you did. And because, as Sarah just said, as much as anyone else loves you, Jesus loves you more than that. Jesus loves you much more than that. And so we remember and we say, Again, I will trust you. So we'll pray and we'll do this together. Father, thank you that even a story like Job's can encourage us and 
It challenges our faith. Horrible moments in life, they, they make us ask questions that don't seem to have good answers. They cause us to feel as if you've turned your back on us when the reality is you're standing right there with us to be with us through those moments, those days, those weeks and months and sometimes seemingly years. And so we remember, Jesus, what you did for us on the cross and the horror of that for you as son and father, for you as dad. Help us not to forget and help us to trust. And Holy Spirit, we're counting on you to help us because we can't do it on our own. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And so we take the wafer that reminds us of Jesus, his body. And we remember that it was given for us that our Salvation came at a high price, the son of God's life, and we remember. And the juice that reminds us of his blood given for us on that tree, for us, that we might trust him when nothing seems to make sense. And so we remember. And so God, in moments like these, as with our baptism, as with our commitment to you, in a moment like this, we draw a line in the sand and we say, we will, we, we will trust you not knowing what's going to happen over the next seven days. We don't know, but we're grateful you do. And in the moments, if there are moments over these next seven days where we feel alone and separated from you, Father, help us to remember that that's never true. You are all alone is never are never words whispered from your mouth into our ear. They come from the enemy who wishes to separate us from you and knows that in our darkest moments when you seem even more less seeable, that in those moments he has his greatest chance. Help us to trust you when we don't understand and we don't like it. Help us to run to you. Thank you, Father. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.